good singing this morning, encouraging to fellowship together in the truth as we sing it together. I am thankful for an opportunity this morning to uh, present a candidate for membership. We're not voting, um, but Alice Hargrove has been through the membership class, uh, membership process, and uh, she has given testimony to salvation, Jesus Christ, or baptism by immersion, and has also agreed to the Constitution and Statement of Beliefs in our church, and is willing to follow in the spirit of Hebrews 13, 17. And I have enjoyed getting to know Alice uh, through visiting with her over this time, and it seems like it's been a long time since we started the membership process with her. I appreciate her patience, but uh, just wanted to let you know that, uh, Lord willing, next week we will vote. And uh, the reason we announce ahead of time is just for the sake of our church family uh, that has knowledge of this person. And uh, we want to certainly vote with with knowledge. And um, so if you have uh, gotten to know Alice, I think uh, you'll rejoice uh, with this opportunity to vote on her membership. But we do that uh, for every person who joins our church uh, in case there might be, for some reason, concern in the intervening week. We're looking forward to uh, the membership class as well for others who might be participating. I had someone ask me this morning, uh, can I participate? And I would just say, if you're interested, the membership class is really for anyone who is interested. Um, there are obviously qualifications for membership which need to be met. Just because you go through the membership class doesn't mean that you can become a member, but that's where you learn about what church membership is. And for those of us that are members, if you've been a member, uh, it's really not intended for you. But if you're not and you would like to learn more and uh, perhaps you're thinking about joining the church or you just want to learn more, we certainly would welcome you. We're going to be meeting here in the uh, sanctuary, and then the other uh, class, Christian Life Hour adults will be meeting downstairs along with the teens, uh, any teens that are not a part of the membership class. So I just wanted to make you aware of that, and we're looking forward to that in the month of February. It is good to be back with you. Um, didn't anticipate missing time. I appreciate Pastor John's labor and my absence and his taking care of things enabled me to get some rest and feel better. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting back into the book of Acts with you. So if you would turn to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, Really going to be focusing on the end of this chapter as Luke writes of the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, according to the Word of God. Prophecy in Joel argues for the resurrection based upon Psalm 16. Peter also arguing based on the Davidic covenant that Christ had to rise from the dead in order to reign upon the throne. And as he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he poured out the Spirit. That's the explanation of what took place there 
on the day of Pentecost. And the last time we looked at Acts chapter 2, we looked at verses 37 and down through verse 41, where those who had gathered, who were not among those disciples who had originally received the Spirit, responded to the call of the gospel. They responded to the gospel message. They turned from their sins, and they were baptized in Jesus' name, and they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 41 tells us the response. So then those who had received his word, that's faith, were baptized. That's the outward sign of their faith. And we talked a little bit about what baptism means, what it doesn't mean. Baptism doesn't save, but baptism is an outward sign that a person has believed and trusted in Christ and is following Christ. And how many were added that day? It says at the end of verse 41, about 3,000 souls. So from 120 in chapter 1 to 3,120. And then by the end of the chapter, Acts chapter 2, verse 47, it says the end of the um, verses here, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the numbers are increasing, but they have increased dramatically. There's a sudden growth. And Jesus did have many disciples. At different times, there were disciples who turned away from him. We see that in certain passages of Scripture after Jesus taught something that they would not receive. They turned away. But here is a dramatic growth of the disciples of Jesus there in Jerusalem. And then you have described their activity. What are they doing? Following their, putting their trust in Christ. What are they, what are they occupied with in these, what someone has called glory days or the golden age of the church? This time of great joy and happiness, newfound faith in the Messiah, an understanding of the working of God and the coming of the Spirit. What are they doing? Well, we're told, starting in verse 42 and down through verse 47, in sort of a summary fashion, what is taking place in those early days. So let's read through verse 42. 2 and down through verse 47. It says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So genuine faith is working itself out. They had come to believe in Jesus Christ, and that didn't result in a static life. There was progression. There was growth. There was transformation. There were things happening in the lives of these people. 
And this, along with the coming of the Spirit, is one of the parts of this chapter that you'd have to say God is doing some amazing things. Yes, it was amazing that the Spirit of God came, that they spoke in other tongues, that there was a flame of fire over each of their heads. Yes, it was amazing that so many people trusted in Christ on that day, but now it's amazing to see this new body of believers sort of take shape in their activity as they followed Jesus and listened to the teaching of the apostles and related one with another. What were they doing? What did it look like? We don't have to imagine because Luke gives us a summary here. They were devoting themselves, verse 42, to corporate worship. They were continually witnessing supernatural activity surrounding the apostles. You can see in verse 43. They are sacrificially giving to and caring for one another, verses 44 and 45. And they are enjoying daily fellowship, joyful praise, growing favor, and constant growth, the last two verses of the chapter. Some amazing things that are taking place here. The first one, when I say corporate worship, it's not as though they're doing what we're doing today in this place at this time. They didn't have a building. When we think of a church, remember the church is not a building, the church is people. The church is those who have believed on Jesus Christ, those who have followed Jesus Christ, who've been baptized in his name, the the people are the church. And it's the people, verse 42, who are doing these things. Someone has called these the four pillars. But they're really activities we could say are part of corporate worship. And I'll take a little time to explain each of these. This is an important, I would say, prescriptive verse to describe what the church is to do. Not everything in the book of Acts is prescriptive. Some of it's descriptive in the sense that it's just telling us what happened. That doesn't mean that we always do everything that it says believers did in the book of Acts. We have to recognize this is a transition time. In addition to the miracles that are taking place, there are other things that we would just say, well, that happened, but it doesn't mean we need to try to replicate that. But in terms of this verse, what are they doing? Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And I'm suggesting this is a constant devotion to corporate worship. The first point of which is attending to, I'm using that word on purpose, attending to the teaching of the apostles. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And that same verb, combination, is applied to the rest of the verse as well. They were continually devoting themselves to. They were giving themselves to constantly. This wasn't a one-time thing. It wasn't once in a while. It was a constant, all of the time, attending to the teaching of the apostles. And when it says the apostles' teaching, it really was the apostles' Peter, James, John, all the rest of them that are mentioned in chapter 1 that are doing the teaching. They're giving instruction. You might ask, well, what are they teaching? Well, Jesus, of course, was their teacher. And Jesus, as their teacher, had taught them what to teach. 
Matthew chapter 28, when he gave that great commission, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatever I have commanded you. So Jesus had given instruction. Jesus is now in heaven. He has transitioned the leadership over to these sent ones. That's what the word apostle means, these sent ones. They are sent for his purposes initially to Jerusalem, to these people, to teach them. And so they're teaching. And whether it was Peter, James, or John, or any of the rest, they're giving instruction to these many new disciples. They're giving them a knowledge of what Jesus taught and said. Turn over to Acts chapter 10 for just a moment. We get a sense of their witness and there is instruction from what Peter says to the Gentiles. He's saying this to the household of Cornelius. But look at verse 42 as he's preaching the gospel here after he preaches Jesus risen, and he and the rest of the apostles were witnesses. Verse 42, he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who's been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. And he goes on. That's one of the points of instruction that Jesus had given to his disciples, that they were to preach to all the people. Now, certainly that would involve their gospel witness, but in addition, there were things that they were teaching to those who were there at the temple. And I would suggest that what's taking place in their instruction is in homes around Jerusalem, as the passage indicates, but also just at the temple as Jesus himself had taught there. And when I say they were attending to their teaching, I am using the, that word on purpose because I don't believe they were just simply hearing words without putting them into practice. They were continually attending to the preaching of the apostles and following up that teaching. They're hearing it, but then they're actually doing what they're being instructed to do. And just by way of application, we really still are by God's grace in the church, attending to the teaching of the apostles. And we don't diminish the prophets at all. The apostles, as they taught, certainly taught on the basis of what God had already revealed in the prophets in the Old Testament. But then there was instruction that came through Jesus Christ for Jesus' disciples. Think of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, or Jesus teaching in Matthew 24 and 25, or Jesus' instruction to his disciples in John 13 through 17. These are not just for the apostles. They're for all of God's people, and the apostles are taking that teaching and giving it. And for us today, we are still recipients of the apostles' teaching. And I think the question is, are we giving attention to it? Are we attending to it frequently? faithfully, and not only hearing words, but actually seeing God's word worked out in our lives through obedience. 
I think it's important to ask the question, how much are we hearing, but also how much are we obeying? Are we attending to the apostles' words and the apostles' teaching because they are sent by Jesus Christ? As I pick up the New Testament that I have been given and I read through the New Testament, I am attending to the apostles' teaching as it's being taught in a congregation and we're receiving of those words. We're being taught, but to attend to it is not only to hear it, it's to put it into practice. It's really living the life of faith. And that's what's taking place here. This is not just a new teacher to listen to. It's a new life to live. That's the point. How much of God's word are you hearing? How much of God's word are you putting into practice? These who had believed were continually devoting themselves to it. Doesn't tell us the frequency in the verse. But I think you can see based on later in the passage, there's daily activity that this is a regular uh, occupation for them where they're giving their attention to the word of God and it's transforming their lives. I think you can see even in the passage here how it's transforming their lives. A second thing that Luke records the new believers are doing is they're fellowshipping. This is the word koinonia. It means partnering together for some common purpose. I believe that this passage goes on to explain some of the fellowship they were having, some of the sharing they were doing. In addition to sharing spiritual truths and spiritual blessings with one another, they're also sharing materially with one another according to need. And so fellowship as a church begins with believing together, but then it's a life that is shared together, and it's a sharing of both spiritual and material things according to need. That's fellowship. And again, this passage goes on to explain that more. But it's this particular group of people. It's the ones who had believed. It's those 3,000 souls along with the other disciples, the apostles that are gathering together, that are fellowshipping with one another, that by their knitting together in love and partnering together, they're becoming a distinct group. I think that's one of the other things that we see in this passage is there's some cohesion to what's taking place. There's a partnering together. There's a fellowship and that certainly it has to do with conversation, but it also has to do with truth that is held and then things that people are doing in order to participate with one another as they serve God. So there's the apostles' teaching, there's fellowship, there's the breaking of bread. And one of the questions that comes up and you as you look at this passage and compare passage with passage is what is Luke describing here? Is he describing just ordinary meals, shared meals that they are having together, or is this the Lord's table? Is this what 1 Corinthians 11 describes as the observance of the Lord's Supper? Is this communion? Well, I'll just reference Luke chapter 24. In fact, you could turn over there, Luke chapter 24 as Luke uses this phrase or this idea, as he's describing the disciples on the road to Emmaus, 
these disciples, not knowing that Jesus had risen, was with them. He was veiled from their eyes, but with them, and he went to stay with them into verse 29. It says in verse 30, when he'd reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. So what are they gathered for? They're gathered just for a normal meal. But there was something about, as he broke the bread, what was happening where it's in that moment they recognized him. And verse 31 says, then their eyes were open, they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? They got up at that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, even though it was late, found together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, the Lord really has risen, or has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began relating their experiences, or to relate their experiences on the road, and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Okay, so I'm just saying, as Luke uses this term, he is talking about just a normal meal. But there's something about that, that as he did that, they recognized him. And as the church continues on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, if you want to turn over there. Verse 7, this is long after Acts chapter 2. This is Paul, one of his journeys. Comes to Troas. He's there in Troas for seven days. In verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Now, one thing I'd point out is that the first day of the week is the day for worship. It's the day that Christ rose from the dead. It's the day that was instructed in 1 Corinthians as the day for giving. Here, it's a day when they gathered together. Paul was here for a length of time, but it was on the first day of the week that as they gathered, they broke bread. And what did he do as well? He preached. This is Christian worship taking place on the first day of the week. Verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day and prolonged his message, his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting in the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. Notice this, when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. Okay, so what is, what is this talking about? This isn't talking about a meal together. This is a part of corporate worship. It's the Lord's table. Now, that being said, were the disciples sharing meals together? Yes, they were. In fact, some take this, this text to refer to that time when the believers gathered together to share a meal, and as they finished that shared meal, they would then observe the Lord's table. This is something that in the early church is perhaps different. That's why if you read 1 Corinthians 11, it's talking about people eating and others, people not eating. 
what's going on there? Well, there's more to that situation than simply just the Lord's table as we typically observe it. There's a meal. In the context of that meal, they're breaking bread and they're reminding themselves, the leader, the one preaching, the one administrating the Lord's Supper is reminding of the death of Christ, reminding of the body that he gave as a sacrifice for sinners, reminding of the blood as they took the cup that Jesus shed for sinners. So when it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, it is certainly referring to that part of corporate worship, but in the early church, there was such a combination that when they said, let's get together to break bread, it could have just meant we're going to have a meal together, but as a part of that, we're going to enjoy remembering the Lord and what he did. So if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that same general context of 1 Corinthians 11, one of the things Paul asks, he says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? So he's referring to that practice of observing the Lord's table, but using the breaking of bread. Verse 46, if you look down there, it says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. You can see the flexibility of the term, but also the possible implication that that's what they were doing from house to house. As they gathered in houses, they're remembering the Lord's death. They're doing what Paul gave instruction on in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, the last verse, or the last portion of verse 42, mentions prayer. You see that? Or literally, you might see in the margin, the prayers. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. I believe this is a reference to corporate prayer. The prayers are the public prayers of the church as God's people gather together and someone lifted up their voice representing the congregation by their speaking, and they speak to the Lord, but all those who are there are participating in that prayer as they say either amen in their heart or amen at the end or amen in the, in the middle of the prayer as the person is praying. And what does amen mean, amen? Amen? Greek or English or Hebrew, it's the same word, truth. I agree. And that's one way in which you can participate when someone else is praying is by amen. Yes. Yes, Lord. That's what I want when someone is leading, biblically praying to the Lord. In Acts 1, they were praying preceding this passage. They were waiting for the promise of the Father. It seems at the beginning of Acts chapter 2 that they're gathered together in one place. It could have very well been as they were in a prayer meeting that this is taking place, that Jesus poured out the Spirit. But certainly, as you go through the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, the apostles have been persecuted, and they come and they tell the disciples what had taken place, and they pray and ask the Lord for boldness in the face of the persecution. And the Bible says 
that as they prayed, the place was shaken where they gathered together and they continued to preach the word of God with boldness. The prayers of God's people, as they got a hold of the ear of God, God is answering their prayers from heaven on earth as they're praying for the progress of the gospel. God is hearing their prayers. When Peter was thrown in prison in Acts chapter 12, James had already been executed. Peter is there with four soldiers around him, and around the clock there are fresh soldiers waiting to keep watch over him, but it says prayer was being made for him by the church of God. And later in the chapter, you find a whole house full of people where they're praying, praying for the release of Peter, praying for God to protect him. And if you read through Acts chapter 12, you see an angel coming, the soldiers asleep, striking Peter to wake him up, walking through, and every door that he encountered just opened of itself until they actually got to the prayer meeting and they wouldn't even open up the door because they didn't believe it was Peter, but God had answered prayer. And I would suggest that prayer in the life of the church certainly needs to be a part of when we gather together, but it's also the atmosphere of the church. Prayer. Read through the book of Acts. There are lots of references to prayer. Corporate, public. Yes, there are times where someone is personally, privately praying. Paul was praying after Christ confronted him on the road to Damascus. Ananias is in another place, and the Lord said to Ananias, go to the street called Straight, and there's someone there. His name is Paul, and Ananias knew who he was, but the Lord said, behold, he is praying. There was activity because Paul was praying, and Ananias is now sent to him to give him direction and instruction. So there is personal prayer, but there's also corporate prayer. And prayer is, of course, commanded, as we see in the epistles. Paul said, first of all, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, as he gives instruction about prayer, I'm just going to ask you the question and application. Do you pray? together with your church family? Do you pray with a brother or sister? Do you pray when we pray, when we gather together, and even on the Lord's Day, do you pray during that time? Is that something that you're in agreement with and you're participating? It's not time to, pastor's going to pray now, it's time to go to sleep for a little while. Time to think about other things. Do you pray? And I'm not even just talking about those public and corporate times, but do you pray with your church family? Do you pray for your church family? We have many examples in the scripture of those who prayed individually, but we have many examples of that corporate praying as well. And it really is the atmosphere of a church that is a biblical church. There's a book that's come out recently by Sinclair Ferguson called Devoted to God's Church. And in his chapter on the subject of prayer, he talks about some of the challenges that face the modern church that maybe didn't face a church that's meeting at the temple for daily prayer that, you know, was largely gathered together 
in close community. They lived close to each other. Of course, they didn't have cars. They didn't travel like we do. And he talks about some of the challenges there are with even what many churches do, what we do, some of the challenges with a midweek prayer meeting. And as he talks about that, he gives some thoughts, his thoughts about what could be helpful. He even says it may be that a larger central meeting for prayer is impractical for whatever reasons. And I don't, I don't know what the challenges may be for you. Uh, there may be providential circumstances in your life that keep you from participating in corporate prayer meetings. Hopefully, whenever we gather together, we're spending some time in prayer. It could be that you don't have a good reason and that even talking about prayer, I think for all of us, we'd have to say, if we start talking about prayer and we're all going to hang our heads because we all know we need to pray. We all know that we don't pray enough, and many times we're prayerless. His suggestion in this book devoted to God's church, he says, if that larger meeting is impractical, he says, if so, then ways need to be found to punctuate the week with opportunities for corporate prayer. Whether midweek or before services, early in the morning, at church Bible studies, or in other small groups. Surely the church that never comes together for prayer loses something. We really do lose something. He says, apart from other considerations, there's no better way to get to know both the church and the hearts of your fellow church members. And I would say that is a helpful insight because part of what Christ commanded us is to love one another. And in loving one another, praying together is a part of that. It's a part of learning what my fellow believer has on their heart to pray. Not everything in the prayer guide is on the heart of your fellow believer. Some things are too personal to share on that wider scale, but as I fellowship with my fellow believer and we share requests, or maybe even as I hear my fellow believer pray, I have opportunity to come alongside that person Love them, pray for them, pray with them. They can pray for me too. I mean, we are engaged in a battle together. Are you fighting personally? Are you helping others fight? He goes on to say, however, our church configures itself for prayer. We should follow the pattern. We need to pray together. So praying in your home by yourself is good, right? Daniel did it. 
is a great example that Daniel sets in Daniel chapter 6, says three times a day he went before the Lord on his knees, facing Jerusalem, praying certainly for the restoration of God's people to that place. That was Daniel's prayer life, personal prayer life. But if you read through the book of Daniel, that's not the only time that Daniel prayed. In fact, he told his friends to pray. Pray so that our lives will be spared, he said in earlier in Daniel. And I don't know what it's going to take to bring our church to pray together as it should. I don't know what was happening in the church of Jerusalem prior to Acts chapter 12, but the leader being executed and then another put in jail certainly brought them together. I would hope it wouldn't be a crisis like that. I would hope that our hearts would be so impressed with the need of this generation and our world for the gospel that we would be willing to gather together to pray and ask God to use us and to bring progress to the gospel. The early church was praying together. You can see that as Luke describes it. What else are they seeing? Look at verse 43. Following these four pillars, these four activities that they were devoting themselves to, it says, verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Miraculous, supernatural activity that was producing a psychological effect, not only on the church. Notice that, verse 43, first word is everyone. It's every soul, literally. Every soul kept feeling a sense of awe. And that seems to be distinguished from in verse 44 when it says, all those who had believed. So it's like Luke has centered in and he's focused on just those who had believed along with the disciples, the 3,120, if we're going to put a number to it, estimate. And then following that, he's taking a, a step back and he's showing that there was supernatural activity. The apostles are doing miracles. And as the apostles are doing miracles, that's not a secret. It certainly wasn't a secret to the church, but it also wasn't a secret to Jerusalem. It became known what was taking place. And these are, as it says, signs and wonders or wonders and signs, verse 43. You might have a marginal note next to the word signs. Another translation is attesting miracles. These are miracles that are giving witness to the fact that God is at work. He's at work through these men, these men who are preaching this message, this message which Jesus is the Christ. You see an example of that in chapter 3 as Peter heals a man who has um, lame from his mother's womb. 
verse 6 of chapter 3, when the man asks for some money, Peter says, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk. Seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And that's just one, and it's a later one than the one described here. Luke is including that to give a sense of the kinds of things that were taking place. This is a man sitting at the gate of the temple, and it's unmistakable. People knew him. People had probably seen him with his hand outstretched. These other miracles that are taking place are creating in the hearts of people a sense of awe. Fear. Phobos is literally the word. Phobia. We get our word from that word. But one paraphrase has a deep sense of awe. And notice the wording here. It's everyone kept feeling. The imperfect tense of the verb means it's almost like there are waves of of awe that are coming over the people as event and event, miracle after miracle, sign after sign. All these things are being done to testify to the apostles that they are following Jesus, that they're preaching this message in his name, that Jesus is giving them the authority, the power to do what they're doing. You know, what's interesting is that awe, or even a deep sense of awe, is not the same thing as faith. You can have a fear or a respect for something, that something has taken place, but not actually be believing. Why do I say that? Well, if you look at the gospel as it describes Jesus having cast out the legion of demons from the man in Gadara, Luke writes, all the people in the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them for they were gripped with, same word, great fear. There was a sense that God had done something, but they wanted him to leave. There was not a reception of him. Instead, there was a, get away from us. They were afraid of him. And I do believe that Luke draws attention not only to that public sense of awe, But then in verse 44, he then zeroes in again on the disciples. So there's activity taking taking place, supernatural activity taking place around the, the apostles as they're doing these miracles. And it's having this widespread effect on the people, all of the people, every soul. But then again, he zeroes in and says, all those who had believed. And I think as you read through the book of Acts, you can tell that there's a distinct group following Jesus. There's a wider group that had respect for the followers of Jesus, but weren't necessarily a part of them. In fact, in one passage, it says that they had them, in chapter 5, they held the church in esteem, but they didn't dare associate with them.
So the church is becoming defined, you can say. Supernatural activity is taking place. Their corporate worship is taking shape. Verse 44, it describes their sacrificial giving to one another. It says, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. In verse 41, this group of people is described as those who had received his word. That's Peter's word. That's the message of the gospel. Now, in verse 44, it's those who had believed. Faith, receiving the word, trust, reception of God's word, and then depending on God's word. This is a community of faith, and where there is True faith, there is love, and that love is expressed in practical ways. In the case of this church here, Jerusalem, their lives are being transformed, and guess what it's affecting? Their willingness to share with one another. No longer is it hoarding or give me, give me, give me. It's now let me give to you. Now they are giving out. Their lives have been transformed, and I would encourage you to suspect suspect the faith that only talks and speaks, but never does anything. Suspect the faith that acts only when people are watching and not when no one is watching. Suspect that faith that really is a hypocritical faith. There are certainly people who are so-called Christians. They're not truly Christians. They speak like Christians and they act like Christians when people are watching, but they're not in private the same as they are when other people are watching. We see this at different times in the Bible where someone is hypocritical and their hypocrisy becomes evident. Their faith is not real. It's only a put on. But this faith is real and it's affecting even their pocketbook, you could say. It says, and all those who had believed were together and had all things common. They're not so much concerned about what belongs to me. They're concerned about what do you need? And if what belongs to me is something you need, that if I'm going to be a steward of that, I'm going to hand it over so that you can have what you need and be helped. This is obviously taking place because they began to love one another. And it got even to this point where it says in verse 45, they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now, selling property so that I can help other believers, that was taking place in the book of Acts. It's taking place in chapter 4 when Barnabas has some property. He knows that he can help the church. He sells this piece of property. He comes and he lays the money at the apostles' feet, and they're able to distribute it to those who are in need. Now, I don't believe they sold their homes, and I don't believe this is communism either. Uh, They sold property 
but they still have, you can see even in Acts chapter 12, where that prayer meeting takes place is actually the home of one of the believers. It's a larger home that as people were gathered together to pray there, that was used for that purpose. So we're not talking about everybody just selling everything, giving them everything up and just kind of living in a commune. I don't believe that's what's taking place, but they are sharing with each other. This is a part of their fellowship together. And when Christ comes into a life and transforms that life, and he, through the gospel, helps them to see that he has loved them, that he's given of himself, he's laid down his life for them, then a person begins to understand what John says in his letter, that Christ gave his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And if that involves selling something so that somebody can have what they need or giving something that I don't need, even something I do need, but I know they need it more, there's a giving, there's a sacrificial giving that characterizes new life in Christ. And I would ask you, are you a giving person? Do you give for the sake of your fellow believers? When you see a need and you know that you have what could meet that need, do you respond to that? Is your heart touched by that? Do you move towards that? First John chapter 3, John said, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren and then he applies it to material things. He says, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue. That's the hypocrisy. You say you love someone, but you don't have anything to back it up. He said, let us love in deed and in truth. Now, we live in a circumstance, situation, I wouldn't say we were not aware of needs at all, but we certainly live in a place of abundance by God's mercy and grace. But we should not be so insensitive that we, we don't see when there are genuine needs and can reach out. And we ought to reach out. We have a benevolence fund. The purpose of that has been to help someone who is in need. When we become aware, I become aware, Pastor John or the deacons become aware of someone who has a need, and we try to meet that need through what has been given in benevolence. So I know that there is a concern for that, and I'm thankful. If you give towards that benevolence, thank you for doing that. That's the right thing to do, but, but it doesn't have to go through the benevolence fund. It can come through a benevolent heart from your hand to theirs. Or if you want to do it secretly, you can do it in a way where they don't know who did it. But giving and self-giving, sacrificial giving, is a part of really what it means to know Jesus Christ and to live like Jesus Christ. Let's look at the last couple of verses here. Day by day, verse 46, continuing with one mind in the temple. And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Amma, verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord is adding day by day, adding to their number day by day, those who are being saved. So what is happening here in addition to their sacrificial giving, in addition to their witnessing supernatural activity, in addition to their participation and attending to corporate worship, the word of God and those other things, now you see them enjoying daily fellowship, joyful praise to God, growing favor with the people, and that's the surrounding people, Jerusalem, and constant growth. So if I was to follow these people, if I was to say, okay, where are the Christians? What are they doing? I I think based on the teaching of the book of Acts, I'd probably head for Solomon's porch or his portico. I, I would head there because in the later chapters in Acts, it says that the church was meeting there. Remember, the church didn't have buildings. And this is the Jerusalem church. They did have a building. It was the temple. They didn't see any kind of conflict with worshiping the one true God through Jesus Christ at the temple. Jesus taught in the temple repeatedly. You read through the Gospels, and he is in the temple teaching. In fact, when he was taken and arrested, he said, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Read through the Gospels and see where Jesus is when he says what he says. Many times he's in the temple. Now, not always. He's got a Galilean ministry and a Perean ministry, but there are times where he's in the temple teaching. And as he's teaching, he's giving instruction to his disciples. Well, his disciples would have been familiar with him teaching there, but now he's in heaven and they're teaching there. Luke 19.47 says he was daily teaching in the temple. Luke 20, one of the days while he was teaching in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes with the elders confronted him. Luke 21, while he was there in Jerusalem, it says, Now during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. John 18, 20, when the high priest is questioning him, he says, I have spoken openly in the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. In Acts chapter 3, it's the portico of Solomon where Peter is preaching. So that's why I said you head for Solomon's porch, and that's where the Christians are gathered. That's what they're doing, I believe, verse 42. Where are they hearing the apostles' teaching? It's at the temple. If they're in Jerusalem, where are they praying? Take a look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. They're listening to teaching at the temple. They're praying at the temple. They're fellowshipping at the temple. Based on the estimates from Josephus' writing of the portico or the porch of Solomon, it seems that there would have been plenty of room, 650 feet long, 50 feet wide. It also would have been a beautiful thing, columns 43 feet high. That's based on Josephus's description. There'd be plenty of room. And what was Jesus' desire for the temple? His express desire, something that he said. 
that's now, one writer said, now it's been achieved. Remember he came in and he saw people selling things and he started early in his ministry to get it all cleared out because it didn't belong there. And he came again at the end of his ministry and again, he cleared it out and he said, my house, the prophet said, is to be a house of prayer. And now it is. There are disciples, believers gathering together, not to exchange, not to make money, but to pray. This is a temple where God is worshiped. His house is to be a house of prayer. And day by day, they're continuing with one mind. One translation has unanimously, or uh, one idea about that word anyway is, is unanimously. The idea that by agreement, they were coming together there. They were there in the temple, and from house to house, they're breaking bread. So this is the enjoyment of meals. I think the rest of the verse explains. But it doesn't exclude the possibility that from house to house, they would also, as the Lord taught, remember his body, which was given, his blood, which was shed for the sake of their salvation, the inauguration of the new covenant. And what's their state of mind? They're glad. They're rejoicing. There's a simplicity. The word sincerity is simplicity. A a, a united single focus. All of them together, rejoicing with one another and rejoicing in God, rejoicing in God's Messiah sent from heaven to earth and now ascended into heaven and he has sent his spirit. And now we are the recipients of such a great salvation and we have received God's grace and his forgiveness and all these good things. Now we have fellowship with one another. What a wonderful time to praise God together. Wouldn't it be great if we just came to church and we just enjoyed praising God? Just love to sing his praises. And our hearts are so filled with joy that we can't help but smile. Now, I know we come in sometimes with heavy hearts. I know at times, as some of you have shared what you're going through, that that can weigh you down even when you approach God to worship. But surely there's something of comfort here. And there's something of grace here and mercy here when we look into the word of God. Certainly, there's something of joy when we understand the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. It should affect our countenance. And if we come in heavy hearted, I would hope that anyone who is preaching from this pulpit, whether it's Pastor John or myself or anyone else, would make sure to draw attention to Jesus Christ. To the glories of Christ, to the salvation that he provides, to the forgiveness that he gives. And that that in and of itself, apart from all the other blessings that we have in God, that that would bolster us and encourage us and help us. And that walking away in fellowship with one another, we build one another up as well. This is such a beautiful picture of what's going on in the early church. It's descriptive. But may God help that to be the case here. 
When someone comes in and doesn't know the Lord, but sees a bunch of loving, joyful people, it's like a magnet. I either want that or I want to be part of that. Now, we're not the magnet. The Lord is the magnet. And praise the Lord that he is. Because we can oftentimes repel because of our sinfulness and hypocrisy. And this is a wonderful picture. And beyond all of these wonderful things that are taking place, and really kind of a capstone in this chapter, is that there were 3,000 saved. But now, day by day, by day by day, God is saving more. His salvation that came through Jesus Christ as the gospel continues to be preached, as supernatural activity is attesting to it, as the lives of changed people, the love that they have for one another is a witness to them. People can see this is the work of God. God is doing something here. Maybe this really is true. Maybe Jesus really is the Messiah. And as they listened to the teaching, they heard the apostles, they heard their testimony. Many, day by day by day, are coming to salvation in Jesus Christ. You kind of wish, don't you, that that just continued throughout church history? That day by day, well, I'm sure God is still saving people. I know he is. And we do long for his saving work to take place here among us. And we certainly pray for that. I hope you pray for that, that as God's people gather together, as the gospel is preached, that there would be those who come in with us and even those who have been here with us for some time who have yet to profess Christ would come to Christ. I mean, it'd be a great thing day by day. It's a great thing when it's one person on one day. But I just want to encourage you by way of application, pray that God would use us so that we will see this is a part of what takes place in a church. As the church is being a witness, as the church is reaching out, proclaiming the gospel, being a witness both by their lives and by their lips, God is going to use, and we need to pray that he will, to bring souls to himself, trophies of his grace, demonstrations, new and fresh demonstrations that he has worked in someone's life so that they would confess Jesus as Lord and believe in him and believe in his resurrection with all their heart. You know, today could be the day for one person here, maybe more than one person here. I don't know when God's plan is. I do know that whenever the gospel is preached and the spirit is convicting that he's working, I believe he's working today. And today could be the day of someone's salvation. They put their trust and faith in the Lord Jesus, bow the knee, and find forgiveness of sins through faith in his name. Would to God he would do that work among us as well. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we do bow, we thank you for this picture of the early church. And Lord, we long to see that same joyful simplicity 
earnestness, continual attention to the truth and to what you have given the church to do. We thank you for establishing the foundation there in Jerusalem for helping us to see a picture of it. We thank you that the gospel, as we have the advantage now of looking through church history, has spread far and wide. And that there are people all over this globe who have believed in Jesus Christ, where the worship of God is taking place truly in his name. And we long for his kingdom. We long for his glory to be displayed visibly to this world. We pray that as you tarry, Lord Jesus, we would let our lights shine, that people would see the light through us and be turned to you and that they would hear the gospel through us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.